you are between the ages of the second grade, wait, wait, four years old to the second grade, that's what I was looking for, you are dismissed to kids club. If you'd like to escape talking about marriage, you can also go to kids club. Herb almost got sent there by his wife for a while. Well, this morning we are talking about marriage. And if you happen to be joining us for the first week, you stopped in today, wanted to check out Calvary, let me tell you that this is not a, a pop shot on marriage. I didn't sit down this week and think, ooh, what should we talk about marriage? Yes, that's what we should do. In fact, it's one of the great things about teaching through a book of a Bible is it takes you to all kinds of places, places you wouldn't necessarily pick, wouldn't necessarily intend, but it allows God to still speak into that. So this morning as we look in marriage, we're, I have to acknowledge to you a couple of things. First, I am not an expert at this. As I stand behind this pulpit, I want to regularly remind you that, that the goal of preaching is not that you'd ever look at me and think Ben's nailed it. My wife can testify to that. Now, I don't want to pick on her, but she hasn't nailed it either. Together, we sure haven't nailed it. But the reality is, is we stand on truth. So our goal here is to put truth before you, that we'd all hear it, we'd all be challenged by it. Now, as we've worked through different sections, this becomes so important for us because the world we're in right now is trying to radically define marriage in all kinds of ways. It's radically trying to redefine your marriage. See, because sometimes we buy into this deep-seated lie that marriage is about us. And it's about our happiness, and it's about our fulfillment. And if you've bought into that lie, quit it. It's not doing you any favors. So we see, when we come to this biblical perspective of marriage, it's going to be radically different. And you have to appreciate that these words don't stand on their own. They sit in the context of a book. So what does the context of this book have to say about marriage? And that's what we want to deal with this morning. So if you're married and you're sitting next to your spouse, I suggest you move about 18 inches apart. That way when the elbows fly, they'll miss you and connect with the pew teaching your spouse the lesson. If you're not married and you're with us this morning, there's still something for you here. Because there's something here that tells you that as a single person, marrying well is the single best decision you're going to make outside of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? amen. There you go. It is all about marrying for the right reasons. So let's get back into Ephesians. As we've walked through this book, the title of our series is being rooted in the gospel. That the way Ephesians, the book lays out, the first three chapters deal with doctrine. It defines who you are in Jesus. The last three chapters deal with how then do you live that out. So when you come to Ephesians 5 and you want to get to marriage... If you haven't rooted your identity in Jesus first, and primarily you come to this text outside of that thought, you're missing it. Because Ephesians 5 sits within the context of you understanding who you are in Jesus 
first. But it says something else to us. Because as we've walked through this text, Paul's tried to paint a picture for you of what Jesus Christ is doing in the world. And as we work through chapter 2, you started to see that as God was bringing Jews and Gentiles into the same room, he was desiring to do something in his church that the world would not understand, that they'd see his redemptive purposes in a body, that the church would look different for his glory. And as we worked into chapter 4, we started to see that God wants our lives to look different. Why? So that we would walk differently, so that we'd reflect him, so that our lives would reflect his redemptive purposes. You see this consistent movement that Jesus is revealing himself to the world through us, through our church, through our lives, and now through marriage. But we got to keep it consistent with Ephesians. In 4.17, he said, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Don't walk like everyone else. Our marriages have to be different. They've got to be distinctly different. So in 5.1, he says, be imitators of God. It says, don't be like this, but reflect God. So when we finally get to Ephesians 5.22, and he's going to start walking into marriage, it's built on the succession of walk with a character that reflects Jesus. Interact with people with a character that reflects Jesus. So when he gets to 5.22, he starts something significant. Now you got to appreciate, according to the context of Ephesians, that what Paul writes here is not unique. Paul takes on what is a, a historic, a classical, philosophical form, what's called in German a Hostafeln. What a Hostafeln is in German, because I, we can speak a little German again, we can bring him back, nobody will die here. A Hostafeln is house rules. That if you're going to ascribe to an ancient philosophy, it's one thing to understand the implications of your philosophy, it's quite another to understand how that plays into your life. See, this isn't just Christianity that's done this. So what Paul is doing is he adopts this ancient form to say, if you're going to find your life foundationally on Jesus, you're going to root yourself in the gospel, that it's got to affect your marriage. Your marriage has to look differently. So I'm going to give you some house rules. I'll give you some little snapshots. So this week we're going to talk about marriage. Next week we'll talk about children's and parents. The week after that we'll talk about work. Because it, the gospel's got to impact our lives across the board. That being said, Ephesians 5.22 starts this way. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's a challenging verse. But let's talk about it. Primarily, if this text is initially are trying to articulate to you that your life is not your own, that it's not about you, it's not about advancing your glory, it's about Jesus. It's about him. It's about his agenda in you. So he's trying to build a snapshot, a picture of marriage that looks different, and he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, I can't imagine there's a word in English that's had more baggage tied to it in Scripture than this one. So let's be honest about a couple of things. Let's dig into this a little bit. First, if you were to look at Ephesians 5.22 in Greek, 
you would note that the word submit doesn't actually exist in this sentence. It actually is an infinitive that carries over from verse 21. And that's actually extraordinarily significant. Why? Because in 521, Paul tells Christians to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul is not asking a woman to do something. He's not asking every other Christian to do. That's so significant for us. Because we can get this idea that submission is a woman's word. And the reality, according to Scripture, is submission is a Christian word. It is a word for Christians. And in fact, we find it seven times in the scriptures that children submit to their parents, wives submit to their husbands, we will all submit to the government, employees submit to their employers, church people submit to the church elders, we're called to submit to one another, and we are all called to submit to Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's about us ultimately reflecting Jesus to one another. It's about us living out the gospel before one another. But this does have some specific implications. Wives submit to your own husbands has everything to do with a category called headship in the scriptures. Now I get that that's also a strugglesome term. Strugglesome. I made up that word right now. A, A term that will cause some of you to struggle. Headship. But the reality is, is God in his creative order created things with order. And he gave a man headship over his family. You start to see this early on in Genesis 2.18. God says, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man shall be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That God created woman with a distinct purpose of helping the man. Now should that verb, that's not a verb. Should that noun cause you struggle? Let's be honest about that one. 21 times does this word helper show up in the Old Testament. Twice about women. The other 19 times, it's referring to God coming alongside man to help man. Kind of makes it a little easier term. The idea here in the created order is that God put man in charge of his family, created woman to come alongside him to help him in his God-given role to lead his family. Now, if you want to consider headship, you also have to consider what a head is. And let me illustrate it for you this way. When I think of my own head lording over my body, my head has never ordered my arm to do something my arm wasn't willing to do. In fact, you find that my own head, its job, as it is in a husband's job, is to order my body for the greatest benefit of me. And that's in fact what you find biblical headship to be. That the job of a man is to order his family for the greatest benefit of all the members. That's what biblical headship looks like. To provide for its family, to protect protect it, and to seek its best. God gave leadership of the family to the man. And it's actually an extraordinary responsibility. Ladies, one of the things this means for you is when you stand in eternity and God asks you to give an account for your family, know that your husband will be standing in front of you. It's putting it on him. And that's huge. In fact, 1 Peter 3, we'll refer to that chapter a couple of times, actually tells a man if he doesn't treat his wife well, God will stop listening to his prayer life. 
God takes how men treat women extraordinarily seriously. So he says, wives, submit to your husbands. What does he mean? What does he mean? The word submission really means to place yourself under. To be willing to place yourself under. It's not an aggressor's term. This isn't UFC or professional wrestling. According to the scripture, you can't force somebody to submit. You can't say, you, bring me that. That's not biblical submission. Biblical submission is a a woman's willingness to place herself under the headship of her man. As unto the Lord. That one of the great testimonies of a wife's willingness to, to follow the Lord is her willingness to follow her husband. I'm not making this up. It's in the word. We're resting on the authority. It says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself its Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husband in everything. It means that God in his creative order created women to subject themselves to their husband. Now you have to appreciate that's a singular relationship. That means if you are a single woman here this morning, you subject yourself to no man except for your father. See, we miss this really cool part of the marriage. We glaze over it. When a pastor says, who gives this woman to this man? And it's an interesting part of a marriage because what happens according to the scripture is the biblical authority of the father is passed over to the man. That at no point does that man, that boys, see, I've got daughters and I'm starting to get like mad about marriage. (laughs) At no point does a boy have any ownership over my daughter. She's three, you know, (laughs) but I'll wear him out when he shows up. And we've got to get a clue about this. This is a, a text about marriage. So what does submission look like? I'll give you three practical thoughts mostly coming out of 1 Peter 3. One, submission looks like it requires that a woman entrust herself completely to the Lord, that she look to Jesus. Roy could not have picked better songs leading into marriage. Cling to the old wooden cross. Lord, I need you. Because as we walk into this passage about marriage, it it is totally impossible on our own. A woman must completely... And trust yourself unto the Lord. And understand that if God is calling you to do this, he's totally aware of what he's asking you. He gets it. One of the best examples we see of that is in the Garden of Gethsemane. You'll find this in both roles. That Jesus shows his submission to the Father. Jesus knows submission far better than we ever will. But he's who we turn to when we don't know how to carry on. Submission requires that we fully entrust ourselves to the Lord. But it also requires us to respect and honor husbands. Verse 33 we'll, we'll get to is challenges a wife to respect her husband. Because as God is trying to do here, he's trying to create a marriage that uniquely reflects to the world his glory. He's wanting the spouse to unique, uniquely reflect Jesus to the spouse. How a wife treats her husband testifies about who Jesus is. In fact, 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 suggests 
that if a wife is married to an unbelieving husband, she treat him in such a way that he'd be won over without words. How a woman communicates to her husband is important. How she respects him, how he, she honors him, uniquely reflects the gospel. And finally, she needs to let him lead. She needs to let her husband lead in the family, lead in discipline, lead in work. It doesn't mean she can't work. It doesn't mean she doesn't get a voice. It doesn't mean she doesn't have responsibility. It just means she lets her husband lead. Guys, if you want to know what leading your wife looks like, Paul's about to open it up. Now I'm nice to women because I've never been one. I've been a man most of my life. That's a joke. So I'll be a little harder on the guys. Verse 25, Paul starts out this way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Guys, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've accepted him as your savior, then how you treat your wife ought to absolutely be in line with your salvation. You've got to love your wives. And he gives you an illustration as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So let's look at the word. The word love is agape. Now agape gets translated in all kinds of ways in our culture. But the highest form of agape is a love that seeks the highest good for the other person. And that becomes an extraordinary definition for us. A love that seeks the highest good. That for me to love my wife is for me to seek her highest good. For me to want the absolute best for Pam and everything. For me to love her and cherish her and honor her. To want the highest good. So guys, are you seeking the highest good for your wife? Can she say that my husband is doing his best for me? And that's a challenging statement. Is she thriving under your leadership? And how much are you supposed to love her? To what extent do you love her? And he illustrates that. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Guys, you're called to love your wife as Christ loved the church. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to talk to Larry Crabb, a noted Christian psychologist, a phenomenal man who's written a lot of books. And I said, ask him one day, by the way, I was not married when I asked him the question. I said, Larry, what's, what's the difference between serving a woman and being walked on? What's the difference between serving out of your whole heart and just being taken advantage of? Larry's answer was, he looked at me, he smiled, and he said, it's your attitude. It's not them, it's you. That you're the one who gets to decide how you want to serve. You're the one who gets to decide whether or not you're going to lay your life down for her. And I was so moved by that. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's an, extraordinary posi- it's an extraordinary picture of what Jesus did for the church and what a husband is called to do for his wife. 
And if you're a gal here and you're single, please know that if you're looking or considering dating a guy and he doesn't look out for your best interest, he's not seeking your highest good, please toss him to the side. Please do something else. Please consider something, a godly guy who would love you in such a way. The principle that is found here is die to yourself. Men are called to be the lead sacrificers. I heard a story of a pastor was telling a while back that he was teaching his boys to sacrifice for women. And that he taught his sons the phrase, the boy goes down so the girl goes free. And it becomes this implication that a boy goes down so the girl goes free, gets played out in that guy's life so he knows. It's why a guy takes off his jacket and offers it to a woman. I will freeze that you might be warm. The guy went on to tell the story that his five-year-old was on a tube flying down a hill. Looked at his son, thought his son was having a ball. Until he realized his son was about to collide with his three-year-old daughter and wipe her out. Terrified, he started chasing after, running down the hill trying to, to catch his son. At the last minute, his son threw his body off the tube and wailed into a tree. Missing his daughter by a couple of feet. He ran to his son, now bloodied by getting hit by a tree. He said, boy, are you okay? He said, dad, the boy goes down so the girl goes free. And I was so moved that his five-year-old had so understood this. These are the gentlemen we need to raise up. A guy who gets that, lives that out, he can show up at my house in 20 years. But men, we're called to love our wives so well. We're called to die to ourselves and to be the lead sacrificers. That's the first major principle he gives you. Die to yourself. 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with the water of the word. That Jesus' death was for the sanctification of the church. And by no means will your dying to yourself bring about the sanctification of your wife. But I have no doubt that you'll, you'll play a part in it. The principle that's to be found here is to provide spiritual leadership to your wife. The way that Jesus provided spiritual leadership for the sanctification of the church. Now this does not mean that you've got to sit down your wife and do a Bible study with her or a prayer meeting. Though it might. The reality is we're called to pray with our wives. And guys, if you're not actively praying with your wife, you're not leading her really well. This is not an area of strength of my life. But the reality exists that we're supposed to pray with our wives and lead them well. If you don't know what praying with your wife looks like, here's a really fun suggestion. Ask her. Just throwing it out there. Honey, how can I pray for you? What's going on in your life that I could pray with you for? Pray over with you. Know what she needs. Know how to prioritize her spiritual life. Know how to make her spiritual growth your priority. I can only tell you what this looks like in my life just a little. Because I'm certainly not trying to exalt my relationship as the, as the example but when Pam comes to me and says, Ben, I think I, we should, I really want to read this book. I think there's something here for me. 
we buy it. I don't care if we've got the money. I've got a sock, I hide, I pull money out of it. Why? So when my wife says, hey, I think this book would encourage myself, good, buy it. When she says, you know, I've really been wanting to get together with my BSF leader. Good, go. I don't care. Whenever you can, anytime. I'll sell the house. We'll make it happen. Don't worry about it. When she says, I want to go on a women's retreat. Good, go. How do we make this happen? Why? Because it's my job to spiritually provide for my wife. And I've got a master's degree in the Bible. I could sit her down and say, woman, study. (laughs) I've got the letters after my name. I could do it. But it's extraordinarily poor leadership. My job is to provide for her spiritually, to create an environment where she thrives. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That what Jesus Christ did at the cross was to redeem the church in its entirety, completely and absolutely, so that the church would be without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. As a principle for marriage, what this looks like is that a man's job is to maintain his wife's purity. Now, if you're dating somebody right now, it's hard to walk through that text to date a woman to keep her purity if you're being sexually impure during your relationship. So we got to honor that first. But purity doesn't end once you get married. Maintaining her purity doesn't end when you get married. There's an amazing contrast here that there's no spots, there's no wrinkles. It's holy, it's completely set apart, it's blameless, it cannot be accused of anything. So the question comes, do you bring your wife into sin? And that can look a lot of ways. That can look a lot of different directions. Do you incite her with your anger? I heard a marriage counselor say it was really great advice that sometimes we need to realize that only you can prevent forest fires. And I can tell you as a man, there are times when I sit before my wife and I realize, if I say this, it's all going to burn down. (laughs) If I say this, nobody in my house is going to sleep. And yet for some strange, odd reason, it makes sense to open my dadgum mouth. Only you can prevent forest fires. Realize male leadership means that you cannot incite your wife into sin. That your anger, you can drag her into it. It's your fault. There's so many other ways, so many other examples. But maintain her purity. 28, in in the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ is the church, because you are the members of his body. As your own body. Guys, I'm trusting you know what, who you are. I'm trusting you know what you like. I'm trusting you know what you want. I'm trusting you know what you need. I'm trusting when you've had a really hard day, you know how to resolve that. I'm trusting you understand yourself so well. The question is, do you know your wife that way? Do you know what she likes, what she wants, what she needs? When she's had a hard day, what she needs? 
how to come alongside her. The scripture is clear. He who loves his wife loves himself. In the South, we put it this way. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. This isn't you being walked on. This is you being biblically wise. Provide for your wives. Nourish them. Cherish them. Honor them. Do you care about her more than you care about you? Because that's the biblical example that's given here. Provide for her. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. First of all, you've got to realize, and I'm running out of time, but there's so many places here where the text is so countercultural to the Ephesians culture. One, the fact that women had any rights at all. You, you do need to appreciate that had this been written into the context and they've been acting like Gentiles, had been like wives, uh, your possession, uh, your owned, act like it. Uh, husbands own your, see, he doesn't do any of that. And so when he comes to passages like this, he says, therefore man shall leave his father and mother. We have to appreciate in the context that this is so countercultural because in the context that this is written in, written into, it was taken for granted that a wife would leave her husband to join her husband's family. Oh no, a wife would leave her family to join her husband's family. And here, he's calling the man to do the same thing. The husband has to leave his parents. Leave and cleave. What this means is that your wife takes your priority. Hold fast to her. She better be the female priority of your life. And it sure can't be your mom. Now, working with college students, that was always a bigger point. I'm sure hoping that none of you grown adult men are still mama's boys. You wonder how that plays out if your wife makes a recipe and your mom makes a recipe. Just make sure your wife's is your favorite. (laughs) Hold fast to your wife. She is the woman in your life. Cling to her and make sure she knows you're her priority. Because if she doesn't think she's a priority in your life, you're not living a Christian marriage. He brings it together in 32 and 33. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul brings it all down, brings it back together to this conclusion to understand that this this passage is extraordinarily circular. That marriage is about Jesus and the church. And it's also about you. For us to understand that, that marriage is primarily about Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about her. It's not about him. Marriage is predominantly about Jesus. Now, guys, in our culture, this is extraordinary because look around at what marriage looks like. I said a couple weeks ago that the church lost the marriage argument years ago because our married lives don't look that different than the world's. And what we find according to this passage is if you are found in Jesus Christ, if you are rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that your marriage has to look differently. It has to. 
It's the gospel being rooted and getting worked out in your life. That is a woman that you would understand that the principle for you is to let him lead. That a, a man you would understand that the principles are that you love her and you die to yourself. You be the lead sacrificer. You provide spiritual leadership to her. You maintain her purity. You provide for her and you make her your priority. I wish the guy section came first because it'd make teaching the women's section so much easier. Because the reality is, is if a man leads this way, if he loves her sacrificially, he gives himself up, he dies to himself, he provides for her spiritually, maintains her purity, if he does these kinds of things, it's real easy to submit to that guy. It's real easy. This morning, if you're married, I pray that you took this seriously. That you didn't just shake your head and think, the pastor's talking about marriage. I've done it for 30 years. Nailed it. But that you will honestly and seriously consider the implications of the gospel on your marriage. And if you're here and you're not married, I pray that you would have heard this and it would have given you every indication to the kind of person you should marry. That it ought to speak to the kind of guy you should look for, the kind of girl you should look for. That if you consider dating somebody who doesn't have the potential to lead you, to die to himself, if it's not reflected in your dating relationship, it won't change. This passage is instructive to all of us. And I pray that the gospel will radically change us and change our marriages so that people would come to Calvary and go, man, the marriages in this church are just different. Why? The answer would be Jesus. That our church is supposed to reflect his glory. Our lives are supposed to reflect his glory. And our marriages are supposed to reflect his glory. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word, that in it we find life and truth. Frankly, God, there's hard teaching to be found here. There are things that challenge us. Father, may we cling to you. You didn't create marriage to make us happy, to make us content. You created it to draw us into a a deeper relationship with your son so that we'd better reflect his love to the world. Father, I pray that you would work in all of our marriages, that we'd never be content, we'd never be passive, and we'd never take a back seat. It's just too important. Thank you for how you love us, Jesus. Thank you that none of us is good enough to live this out. But in your grace, you're redeeming us constantly. Amen.